Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. This is Babbage, a weekly conversation on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on this week's show... Think about a near future where the elderly and the disabled and the blind can get around much more easily than they can now. Andrew McAfee, a research scientist from MIT, will discuss how automation will transform society. And after we've heard about how humans can be augmented by machines, we'll explore some of the future ethical and philosophical issues about artificial intelligence with the expert and author Jerry Kaplan. How do we codify these social conventions and these ethical dilemmas, and how do we put them into computer programs? Also, neuroscientists often compare human brains to computer chips. So what happened when researchers put the idea into practice? They take this chip, they give it some programs to run, Donkey Kong is one of them, and they try and figure out if they can use these sort of neuroscientific techniques to understand what the chip is actually doing. But first, we're going to parachute into the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Here's Anne McElvoy, the head of Economist Radio. One of the big themes we've been focusing on here at Davos has been response to automation and to the disruption of technology. And with me to pursue that is Andrew McAfee. He's a research scientist at MIT and co-founder of MIT's Initiative on the Digital Economy, as well as the author of several books on technology and the future of jobs. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me. And Tom Standage, our resident expert on these matters and deputy editor, is in London. Hello down the line, Tom. Hello. So I thought I'd throw open the question of the impact of automation. What a labour force augmented by robots might really look like. Tom, do you think that we know more about that than we did, say, a year ago if we'd been making the same show? Well, that's a a question I very much want to hear Andrew's answer to, because this debate was very much moved up the agenda last year because it was the theme of the the Davos event in 2016, the idea of calling this the fourth industrial revolution uh, and trying to put it very much on the radar of policymakers. Since then, there have been lots of new studies, and perhaps they've cast some light. And as far as I can see, the debate is still pitting pessimists who think that automation is proceeding in a way and at a speed that it never has before and that mass unemployment could be just round the corner against optimists who say, well, people have always worried about this. And in the long run, technology has always created more jobs than it's destroyed. So, Andrew, where do you put yourself on that spectrum and how do you think the debate has moved on in the past year? I had a really interesting experience just last week that's related exactly to this question. I was at a small gathering of most of the absolute rock stars of the history of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And my role at this gathering was to kind of give them the standard economist's view about what technological progress does. 
does, which is, for the entire industrial era, 200 years worth of history, the pattern has been pretty clear. Technology absolutely destroys jobs. It also absolutely creates jobs. And the pattern has been that we have needed more jobs, more labor, higher skills from people very consistently over that period. So I kind of laid that out and showed a bunch of evidence about that. And then for the rest of the conference, over and over again, again, the rock stars of the discipline came up to me and they said, I think you're underestimating this one. The pace of change is surprisingly fast this time. Most of the people at this gathering would not have predicted where we were even five years ago. And the ability for these very new technologies to deploy and diffuse very rapidly is also much, much greater than it used to be. Tom Standage is our resident rock star on these matters. Does that resonate with you? Or is there something you'd like to push back on and say, well, there are some things that seem to be moving much faster than we anticipated, but there are others that were having more trouble with or indeed might be seen as reassuring if you want to stay in the slow lane. Every single time there's a significant development in computers in particular, people always think that that's the one that is going to lead to mass unemployment. So in the 60s, it happened with self-regulating machines, as robots were called at the time. And the idea that you could have a machine that, you know, did tasks you previously needed a human for was taken as very bad news. PCs were going to lead to lots of unemployment because secretaries would all be out of a job. So we have heard this claim that the latest thing that's been invented is different from all the other things. The other thing that gives me pause is that there is a difference, I think, between the invention and the implementation. There have been expert systems, for example, that can outperform doctors in certain sorts of diagnoses around since the 1960s, but they've never been widely deployed. The reality, and there's this new McKinsey report that's just come out, is that actually getting these technologies out into the world, there are all sorts of barriers to them. It's not just whether a job or a task can be automated by existing technology. Will actually companies invest to do it? What will regulators say? Will there be pushback you know, from employees, from social groups, etc., etc.? So this McKinsey report, it's actually a bit more pessimistic about this than previous reports. It's saying that 2055, rather than sort of 2035, is a reasonable target to assume that something like 50% of the tasks that people do in their jobs are liable to have been automated. So I wanted to ask Andrew what he thinks of that report because it does strike a slightly less scary sounding projection and does suggest that this is going to unfold pretty much in the way that other technological revolutions have in the past. Yeah, and Tom, you're exactly right. We need to keep in mind that there has been an almost nonstop litany of very august people and institutions saying, oh my heavens, because of this particular technology development, here comes massive unemployment. And they've been wrong about that. But also, let's look at some recent evidence. In almost every wealthy country, the middle class has in fact been getting hollowed out. So we're still creating jobs. Those jobs are moving down the pay ladder. That We're creating lower middle class jobs instead of middle class jobs. It is true the official American unemployment rate in the most technically uh, advanced economy on the planet, the official American unemployment rate is below 5%. It is also true that about 12% of prime age American men neither have a job nor are looking for a job. They're absolutely on the sidelines of the economy because those burly, masculine, classic American male middle-class jobs, those have been automated. So when you look at the recent evidence, I do see some signs that this time looks a little bit different and that evidence is not just post-Great Recession. It goes back a while. So that gives me some confidence that this is not a blip, this is a trend. 
I wondered, looking at the McKinsey report and the prediction that only 5% of jobs could be fully automated, whether we are actually clear what we mean by automation. Where do we mean transformation? Where do we mean automation? Is that a clear distinction as far as you're concerned, Andrew? No, it's really not a clear distinction because technology always does two things simultaneously. It substitutes for people and the tasks that they do. At the same time, it's a complement. It's an aid to people and the tasks that they do, sometimes even within the same job. My exhibit A for that is bank tellers. And if you remember back, as soon as ATM machines came out, we heard, again, that litany of prediction that bank tellers were about to become an endangered species. And if you look at what actually happened, the number of bank tellers in America, at least, rose fairly steadily for decades because banks opened up more branches and we actually needed those tellers to do a different set of things but we still really needed those people. We hit peak bank teller in America about a decade ago, and as far as we can tell, the total number of bank tellers in America has dropped by about 20% since that peak. And that's not because of one particular tech breakthrough. It's because of a combination of ATM machines, PC banking, smartphone-based banking, electronic payment systems. These, the technological progress is cumulative, and eventually it can turn net complementing jobs into net substituting of jobs. Peak bank teller, both of you. What's peak next? Please don't say it's radio presenters. Well, one of the other jobs that people talk about in this context is legal clerks. And again, they were supposed to be put out of jobs by smart software because they're essentially human search engines. But we saw exactly the same response that we saw with ATMs, which is that ATMs made it cheaper to open banks. So banks opened more branches and employed more people, at least for a while. And what's happened with legal clerks is employment there has been going up in the past 15 years because software means that you can search through bigger piles of documents than you used to be able to. And that's actually led to more employment. So there are a lot of different factors pulling in different directions. And then the other difficulty is separating this from the impact of offshoring and globalisation and so on. And I wanted to ask Andrew, with the example that you referred to earlier on about looking beyond just the headline unemployment figures, how do we disentangle those two things? And if that is the result of automation rather than, say, offshoring, wouldn't that be showing up in the productivity figures? America remains a manufacturing powerhouse if you look at output. We are second to China now, but we turn out more manufactured goods than Germany, Italy, France, and India combined. And output goes up almost every non-recession year. Now, the year of peak American employment in manufacturing was 1979, and we are down a significant amount of total jobs since then. That is not a globalization story. That's a technology story and an automation story. Tom, you bring up the excellent point that we don't see this recent amazing technology surge in the productivity statistics yet. I think that's to be expected if people are leaving relatively high productivity manufacturing jobs and moving into relatively low productivity service sector jobs. You would expect to see productivity as we measure it go down then. Now, what I anticipate happening is that we're going to see a boost in service sector productivity thanks to things like excellent speech and voice recognition systems, the ability of the new technologies to scan huge amounts of pretty unstructured information and generate a pretty clean, insightful report out of that. I think we also need to include in this discussion that overall, Greater material prosperity and abundance because of tech progress is good news. Now, job loss and wage stagnation are real concerns. And I think we see with things like Brexit and the election of Donald Trump, what can happen when people feel left behind by the progress that's going on. So I don't mean to minimize those concerns at all, but we need to keep in mind we're creating an an overall more prosperous world. The pressing question for us is how we share that prosperity. 
if I commanded you to end on a positive note in a field where there is often a lot of doom-mongering about the impact of automation and computers, what would you say we've got to look forward to? Think about a near future where the elderly and the disabled and the blind can get around much more easily than they can now. Think about a future where absolute best-in-the-world medical diagnosis is available not just to people who live near the great research hospitals in the world, but via pieces of technology and screens and cameras and labs on a chip and smartphones all around the world. Now, that is not a science fiction vision of the future. Each of those things we see very clearly right now. For me, the question is, how do we get there while having most people feel like they're part of that and that they are contributing to it and they have some sense of dignity and meaning and community while these bizarre technologies are not happening to them? but happening around them and happening in their lives and their families. That's the vision I would like to articulate. Andrew McAfee there from Devos. Do you have any ideas on how automation and artificial intelligence can improve society? Email them, along with any comments about our programs, to radio at economist.com. In last week's show, we explored the language and intelligence skills of voice-activated computer assistants. Now, I'm being very careful not to name any names here, but one device came from Amazon. Regrettably, the discussion inadvertently activated the device in our listeners' homes. To level the playing field for all of you Amazon users, we say, OK, Google, order me a yacht. We had this comment sent in by Babbage listener Christoph Stahl from Mussen in Germany. Today, artificial intelligence is about making humans less smart. Other ways it can be used to make us smarter? I wouldn't like to end up in a world where humans don't speak foreign languages, don't know how to drive a car and find their destination, are not able to calculate, and lack any basic knowledge. Quite. In fact, I'm at a loss for words, but maybe that's because I've got voice-activated assistants to do all my work for me. Thank you for your comment, Christoph. We'll explore that topic in future shows. If there's a burning question you want answered, email it to the Babbage team at radio at economist.com. As the practical applications of artificial intelligence develop, the number of philosophical and ethical questions are increasing. In the past, we've asked whether androids dream of electric sheep. In the future, we'll have to ask what happens when an artificially intelligent robot commits murder. Joining me on the line from Silicon Valley to help untangle some of these issues is the author and technology entrepreneur Jerry Kaplan. Welcome, Jerry. Nice to be here. One of the things that you've written about is how artificial intelligence and law will interact with each other. So a question to you is, do you think that robots will ever receive legal rights? The answer to that is yes, but it implies something to the general public, which is really not the case. There's a concept of personhood in the law that has been expanded constantly since I think the first occurrence of it was early in the 18th century to non-human actors. So for example, corporations have certain rights of personhood under the law. And what personhood means in the law is a combination of both rights and responsibilities that go hand in hand. So just as you may need a, a license to practice law and then you're allowed to practice law because you agree to abide by certain principles of how you're going to act. The same thing is true of corporations, and I think it will be applied ultimately to certain kinds of very sophisticated robotic and uh, programmatic systems. Now, if, if the robots uh, have certain legal rights, do you think they will be taxed? They could be taxed. 
the same way that corporations are taxed. One of the purposes of corporations is to put a kind of protective shell around an entity that is non-human in order to permit that entity to engage in certain kinds of legal activities in society. And the same thing might be true of certain kinds of advanced robots, and for the same reason. Basically, you don't want the people who own the robot necessarily to be 100% responsible for everything that a robotic system does because they may not have moral culpability for some of the mistakes or problems that those robots create. Now, one of the issues that has been captivating the minds of people in the profession of AI is if self-driving cars have to make a decision whether to throw the occupant of the car over the bridge or to slam into a group of school children on the curb if something's going wrong. How do you think that this dilemma should be resolved? The question is, to what degree are these devices going to abide by our normal human social conventions? And to the extent that we're building systems that either work alongside or support people in very sophisticated ways, I think it's very important that those machines engage in behavior that we find acceptable. So the question becomes, how do we codify these social conventions and these ethical dilemmas, and how do we put them into computer programs? I don't think that's impossible. In fact, I'm not even sure I think it's very hard. It's just an interesting and new idea that we haven't really had to deal with in a very explicit way in previous waves of computerization. My last question is this. The way that current AI systems work is that we know that they're very accurate, but we're not always sure exactly why. We give up on causality in favor of just knowing the correlation. Should society just simply embrace and accept the fact that we can't know as much as we always knew about why things happen, giving up on causation in return for the great efficiencies that we get? The truth is correlation is really useful and valuable information, and uh, there's no reason not to use it. The problem that I think you're referring to is that these machine learning systems do not have fundamentally in their architecture a way to explain why or how they have come to particular conclusions. I think it's perfectly reasonable for a medical system, for example, to give an explanation for its diagnosis by saying, I looked through 100,000 research papers, I picked out the 25 that I thought were most relevant, and uh, these were the three in which the symptoms were most similar to yours and this was the diagnosis they gave. Now that's merely a correlation, but explanation can be very broad, and I think there's great value in using these systems, even if they don't provide the same kind of machine-like precision, pardon the expression, uh, and logical inference that one normally anticipates a computer program should be capable of doing. So whereas 400 years ago we had to take on faith, you're saying that in the future we need to return to this faith-based way of thinking about the world because we can never truly understand how these algorithms make their decisions. Rather than seeing machines as precise and black and white, we're going to see them the way we see human beings, that they have hunches and judgments. And we can measure whether or not those benefit us and whether they're good or bad. But it, we need to expand our concept of what a machine is or what a machine can do to have more of the shades of gray that we normally expect from human beings, because that's what we're going to be getting from machines that will be helping us and assisting us in very valuable ways. Listen, Jerry, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks, Ken. It's a pleasure to talk to you, too. Finally, neuroscience is a way off from understanding exactly how the brain works. Like many areas of research, the consensus is that more data may provide all the answers. 
But here to argue why this may not be the case is our science correspondent, Tim Cross. Welcome, Tim. Hi, Ken. First, Tim, how is it that data, in theory, is helping us understand how the brain works? The basic idea is that, as you say, no one really knows what the brain does. So maybe what we can do is just look at what it does on a very low level and try and work backwards to what it does on a high level. There are all these big projects like the Brain Project, which was announced by President Obama a couple of years back, or the Human Brain Project, which is an EU-run sort of equivalent. And the idea is you want to figure out ways of pulling huge amounts of information about how exactly brains behave. So you want to be able to model you know, millions or billions of neurons as they all fire and talk to each other. And the hope is that by feeding this stuff to algorithms, you can extract useful information about what's going on at a higher level. But there's a quite interesting paper that was published recently by a couple of people who are both neuroscientists and uh, electronic engineers. And they're a little bit sceptical about how quickly this approach might bear fruit. And so what they did, they had this, this sort of interesting idea. The most popular analogy in neuroscience is that the brain, in a lot of ways, is a bit like a chip. So they thought, well, what if we take these techniques that people plan to use on brains and apply them to a chip? And the idea is because we understand exactly how a chip works from top to bottom at sort of every level, we can check the results of these algorithms and see if they match up with what we know. And so which chip did they use to represent the human brain? Well, they picked a really simple one. So it's a very old uh, chip called the MOS 6502, which was used in sort of early Apple and Commodore and Atari computers and, and, and that kind of thing. This is fantastic. So this is like the nematode worm in biology that they first used to sequence the genome. They're now actually sequencing the the mind, if you will, but on a small Atari chip. So that which is the intelligence of Donkey Kong can actually be the way with which we understand the human brain. That's basically the idea. They take this chip, they give it some programs to run. Donkey Kong is one of them. And they try and figure out if they can use these sort of neuroscientific techniques to understand what the chip is actually doing. One of the the popular techniques in neuroscience is something called lesion analysis, which basically just means you take a healthy brain and a damaged brain and you compare them. You see what what the difference is. Um, So you can do things like if you you get a rat and you burn out some of the neurons in a part of its brain called the hippocampus, like you can make the rat reliably bad at tasks like object recognition. So this is where a lot of these um, conclusions that we've come to that, you know, okay, object recognition is done in this part of the brain and maybe, you know, speech generation is done here. They tried something similar on on the chip. You can disable individual chunks of transistors and, and see what happens. When they did this, they found one chunk of transistors that if you disable, the chip can no longer load Donkey Kong, but it can load other games. It can still load Space Invaders and so on. And they say, you know, you could from that conclude that these this small cluster of transistors in some way are like the Donkey Kong transistors. And this is the part of the chip that does Donkey Kong. But any chip designer will tell you that that's not how it works. You know, the whole chip collectively does Donkey Kong. These little transistors do something much sort of smaller and much lower level. And so you've basically turned up a false positive. I'm at a bit of a loss. Was the experiment a success or not? Part of the point, I think, when I talked to the researchers was, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of hype around neuroscience. There's quite a bit of, you know, once we've done this, we'll understand the brain. And I think they're hoping to just sort of row people back a bit from that. And they draw this comparison with, with the Human Genome Project, which was, the, you know, the, the massive heroic effort to sequence a human genome. Back when that was done, people were saying, oh, this will give us insights into, you know, really impressive insights into cancer and aging and all that kind of stuff. And it turns out that actually analysing it is way harder than a lot of people think. The researchers worry that the same thing will prove true of neuroscience. So surely there's an inherent problem because a brain is not a chip. 
That's a very good point, and it's one of the first things the researchers will admit to when when you ask them. But they do say, you know, a lot of these techniques that real neuroscientists hope to apply to real brains are sort of derived from techniques that were first developed by electronic engineers. And they also say that in a way, okay, they aren't the same, but a chip is much simpler than a brain. So this one that they were looking at had about three and a half thousand transistors. You know, each transistor is connected to a few others. Transistors only really do one thing. The human brain has billions and billions of neurons. They have thousands of connections each. And the behavior, like individual neurons, are much more complicated things than individual transistors. So if anything, it should be easier to figure out what a chip is doing than it will be to figure out what a brain is doing. That's great. Listen, Tim, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Ken. That's all for this episode of Babbage. Don't forget you can send in all of your comments, questions, and feedback to radio at economist.com. And please share the podcast with your friends so we can increase the Babbage community. In London, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.